0: Good day, everybody. This is Med Conversations that you are listening to. Thanks very much for tuning in. So sorry, sorry, it's been a little while since we've uh, podcasted. We have been in the United States and in Cuba, and they don't have microphones there, apparently. Or uh, motivation, yeah,
1: especially not in yeah <laughs> New York. We're lacking more in the mic- the uh, the motivation side yeah. of things. So sorry, but we are back again, and um, we're looking forward to getting right back into it. I know that a lot of you are sitting exams now, so we've, we've really left you in your hour of need. <laughs> Obviously, this is the only resource you use.
0: <laughs> well, I have noticed that the, the downloads have, have gone up despite us adding nothing new, so that's good.
1: <laughs> so so what,
0: what are we doing today, Beck?
1: Today, we're talking about gout, um, and we're just going to do a bit of an overview as usual. We'll put the cases at the end, so make sure you're listening as we go, and then we'll kind of put things into context uh right after we talk about all the theory so we'll start off what actually is gout do you know
0: so it's urate crystals um deposited in joints uh bones or soft tissue
1: yeah so i often saw msu thrown around um in relation to gout and got really mixed up with midstream urine but msu in this context is monosodium urate crystals These
0: really jerk crystals that are like really little needles you can when you see them you can imagine how they'd cause a lot of pain
1: yeah, and pain is what they do. So they cause acute arthritis or, in some cases, chronic arthropathy um, in the form of tophaceous gout. And and really, um, there are a few other manifestations which we'll talk about later, but they're the key things for you to know. So we'll just shoot straight into the pathophysiology. Um, hyperuricemia, what's that got to do with everything?
0: So hyperuricemia, uric acid um, precipitates out of the blood. So if you've got high uric acid levels in the blood, you're more likely to have these needle jerk crystals that cause a lot of pain.
1: Yeah, so um, hyperuricemia is necessary for the um, creation, I suppose, of gout, but it's not sufficient. So there's plenty of people walking around with hyperuricemia who don't have gout. Mm. Um, Also, we'll talk about this later too, but serum uric acid is not necessarily high during an acute attack of gout. But the total pool of uric acid in the body is high. It's just that a lot of those little uric acid guys are are in the form of crystals rather than in the blood. Yeah. All right. So what causes hyperuricemia?
0: So this is the key concept to understand here. So uric acid comes from purines. And you might remember from your first few days that purines are the basic building blocks of DNA.
1: Yeah. So you have pyrimidines and purines. And when purines get broken down, which happens because of an enzyme called...
0: Xanthine oxidase. It's a bit of a buzzword, remember that one, because you've got xanthine oxidase inhibitors that we'll talk about when we talk about treatment.
1: Yeah, so xanthase, xanthine oxidase breaks down the purines into uric acid. And um, and the cause of hyperuricemia is, is best broken down in um, the same way as the cause of any hyper-anything. So under excretion or overproduction. So renal underexcretion in this case um, is is the cause of hyperuricemia in 90% of cases.
0: That's right. So that's why you see it in older people, right, because their kidneys aren't working so well.
1: Yeah. Well, there's a few different reasons. And then the other, the other cause is we said overproduction, but also overconsumption. Often there's a bit of an overlap of both. So first, let's have a look at the renal underexcretion. The main causes are genetic or acquired. So what are the main acquired ones?
0: So these are the common ones that we talk about. So just general renal disease uh, and obesity are the two major ones.
1: Yeah, and then, you have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, some drugs, diuretics, particularly thiazide. Actually, that's, that's probably the major one, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. Real, real big buzzword there. Thiazides cause gout. Not just a buzzword. That's something you see on the wards all the time.
1: Yeah, it's also in real life. So, <laughs> so that's under-excretion overproduction can be broken down in similar ways, genetic, and obviously this is a huge umbrella, but we won't get into the different things. So the genetic
0: causes here are kind of like rare metabolic syndromes that you don't worry too much unless you're a paediatric specialist.
1: That's it. And then there's acquired. So um, we mentioned earlier that it's all from purines. So a high intake of purine-rich foods that are metabolized to urate can contribute to gout or hyperuricemia. So this is things like seafood, meats, beer, and other alcohols.
0: Keep in mind, us spring chickens can probably drink as much beer and meat as we want without getting gout. It's when you combine that with your obesity and the renal dysfunction that you lead to gout.
1: Yeah. Another one is myeloproliferative disease. So that makes sense, right? Like there's high cell turnover in myeloproliferative disease and that's why there might be more consumption or, or um, breakdown of those purines.
0: So they're very similar pathophysiology, path, pathophysiology to tumor lysis syndrome, which you might have heard about.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's hyperuricemia. What about gout itself? How does hyperuricemia cause gout?
0: So when you've got this hyperuricemic state, uh, that increases the chance that the uric acid will precipitate out and cause these needle jerky crystals that cause so much pain. And then these crystals are kind of activate the innate immune system. So this is this now getting into kind of really specialized territory, way beyond the scope of uh, medical students. But if you're interested, so the specific mechanism is involving something called an uh which the inflammasomes then release something called caspases, and in particular caspase-1, and that induces a uh, release of interleukins. And the, and the one to remember is interleukin-1 kind of drives this whole process, and that's why a lot of the uh, kind of newer, fancy anti-gout drugs, which we don't use because our normal ones work quite well attack IL-1 or interleukin-1. But that kind of last minute of talking I did is not that important for for medical students.
1: So I think for medical students, um, even if you know hyperuricemia leads to gout, that's great. But a little bit more detail in between those two things. Prolonged hyperuricemia can cause crystal deposition and shedding of urate crystals, which can lead to phagocyte activation and inflammation. And that is pathophysiology of gout in a nutshell. So we'll move on to epidemiology and risk factors. I always like to split these into the non-modifiable risk factors and the modifiable risk factors. So we'll start with non-mod, non-modifiable.
0: Yeah, it's very cool. So I can't change being a guy. I can't change being old. I can't change my ethnicity. And I can't change my multiple genetic mutations and polymorphisms. Yeah. So they're the non-modifiable. So what am I going to tell a patient that they can change to, to reduce their chances of having attacks of gout?
1: Yeah, so so the modifiable risk factors are best remembered just by remembering Santa. So he's obese. He has presumably a high purine diet. He's drinking a lot of eggnog, so that's alcohol. Um, meat and seafood are also high purine. A lot of seals, purine.
0: I presume. Polar bears.
1: He eats seals. Yeah, That's yeah. No, no, Santa, I've ever been introduced to eat seals. Uh, high fructose and sucrose, so he eats all those cookies. Mm. Hypertension. He probably has hypertension. Look at him; he's pretty flushed in the face. CKD. Let's just imagine this: Santa has CKD, chronic kidney disease. And um, look, we're getting a little bit uh, tenuous with this analogy now, but maybe he's on diuretics. We mentioned earlier thiazides, loop diuretics, as well. Um, and let's say that Mrs. Claus also has gout. <laughs> She's postmenopausal. So, generally, uh, gout is a disease of men with a ratio of about 8 to 1 men to women. And any women who do have gout do tend to be postmenopausal. A couple of other modifiable risk factors are um, organ transplant recipient status, use of certain medications. We mentioned the, the diuretics, but also low dose aspirin, which, of course, is very common and cyclosporin, which is less common, and exposure to toxins like lead.
0: All right, so we, the, the ones at the end aren't so important to remember, but just remember the, the Santa, the old guy who's got chronic kidney disease, is on diuretics and has a bad, high alcohol, high meat diet.
1: That's it. And then for patients who already have hyperuricemia... Obesity and ethanol ingestion are further going to increase the risk for that hyperuricemia to translate to clinical gout. Okay, and another interesting thing is that sometimes it's about the the variation as well. So people who do tend to get gout, if they get attacks of gout, if they change their diuretic use or change their consumption of alcohol, this can abruptly change their uh, extracellular fluid urate levels. So does the and body's kind of, take out as well. The
0: body's in this kind of like delicate homeostasis, and if you mess that up at all, how come the crystals?
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's um, the epidemiology and risk factors. Let's talk about the clinical manifestations. So the key one here is arthropathy. So there can be recurrent attacks of an acute inflammatory arthritis or a chronic arthropathy, which is often tophaceous. Sometimes you can even get tophaceous gout without synovitis. So we'll talk about each of these things in turn. So
0: they're kind of on a continuum. So you start with these acute attacks, and then if it's untreated, eventually turns into these horrible, deformed, tophaceous gout hands.
1: So let's start it off by talking a bit about acute arthritis. Uh, where does it usually affect?
0: So the classic one that you'll see the picture of the rat biting the toe on Wikipedia is pedagra so that's the big toe
1: yeah so it's the uh, first metatarsophalangeal joint Um, but tarsal joints ankles and knees are also commonly affected and particularly in elderly patients or patients who've had gout for a really long time the finger joints might be involved and gout can be polyarticular usually not on the first episode but as time goes on more joints can be affected that's
0: something that's confusing to people I think, because it's usually only seen as a monoarticular joint. I've seen, I've had referrals where people have been like, what is this strange rheumatological condition? It feels like it's normal gout, but it's in four joints at once. Mm. That's definitely still gout, It's just advanced further.
1: Mm. And, I mean, polyarthritis is quite unusual, but certainly oligoarthritis yeah, is not right. uncommon.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so, so what about patients who have osteoarthritis? Another common manifestation of gouty arthritis for them is actually in their fingers. Do you know exactly where?
0: So I I imagine the same kind of areas that have been damaged by the osteoarthritis, right? So Mm. the hebertins or the Bouchard's nodes of the DIP and the PIP.
1: That's it, exactly. So the natural history is is very stereotypical. It tends to be almost the same in in all patients. So it starts at night.
0: So this is acute gap. This is like the first few episodes, right, that you're going to tell us about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is Santa on the first first night of Christmas. (laughs) Wakes up at at 3 a.m. He's got some pain in his big toe uh, pain swelling it's starting to to look redder and angry and the maximal inflammation has been hit by the second day of christmas so the peak inflammation is within 24 hours
0: so time course time course time course as we always say so someone doesn't have this peak within 24 hours you starting to think whether it's something else
1: and um the the attacks would have generally subsided by the 12th day of Christmas. So they, they do subside spontaneously, even without treatment, within 3 to 10 days most of the time. I can't believe
0: after everything he does for us, Santa gets out as a Christmas present. That <laughs> it really sucks.
1: Or he gets better by Christmas, though. Right. Uh, then there's an intercritical period, which is the name given to the time where there's no residual symptoms at all. So that's really uncommon for an arthritis in general to have these periods that the patient during which the patients are completely asymptomatic and this intercritical period tends to be of varying length. Most people who've had a first episode of gout will have another episode within two years. But it does change from person to person. And as their disease progresses, those asymptomatic periods get shorter and shorter.
0: Depends how much polar bear and eggnog they're eating as well.
1: Exactly. It's probably more about the fish, but we'll go with the polar bear. <laughs> okay, so what about precipitants? What causes these attacks of, of gout to come on?
0: So it's some of the stuff that we've already talked about, the, the foods and the polar bear and the eggnog and the beer, but then there's some other things that we commonly see in clinical practice as well. The most common one will be some kind of other illness, so that's why we diagnose so much gout in hospital. It's also thought that kind of exposure to the cold can precipitate the, the crystals, so my personal theory is that's why we've got pedagra people sleep with their feet out at night, gets cold, get yeah, crystals there. Maybe. That's completely unverified. is something good I've dreamed up.
1: Uh, but, but any kind of solution is more likely to precipitate out crystals when the temperature drops, so that definitely makes sense. So that's acute gout. What about chronic? So basically, we, as we said earlier, acute episodes can become more and more frequent and, and more and more bad, and eventually they can cause destruction of the joints and lead to a chronic disease. And basically what happens here is there's continued deposition of tophaceous material and do you know what tophaceous means or tophi what actually what are they made
0: of well they're just made they're big urate crystals right that you've just deposited on your your joints
1: yeah so so that keeps on getting deposited even before even between episodes when the patient's not getting any symptoms and that causes bony erosions which can cause symptoms all the time eventually you also tend to get to fire in random other places, not just in the joints where there's pain. Do you know where you would look for for those?
0: Yeah, so this is this is a good um, tip, particularly for like an OSCE clinical exam on the wards, and you're not sure if it's rheumatoid arthritis or if it's a gouty toe fire. It's really good to look at the ears because mm. there might be some to fire there or other tendons like the Achilles tendons it is worth looking at as well.
1: Yeah, or well, the bursas. I've seen them before on the electron bursa as well. Yeah. So just a brief recap where we're up to here. We've talked about the pathophysiology. So we're talking hyperuricemia leads to deposition of monosodium urate crystals and inflammation. Risk factors, old fat hypertensive males eating meat, seafood, beer, and have CKD. And the clinical presentation, it's all about the arthritis, acute or chronic. So what about differentials?
0: So the can't-miss diagnosis that I'm sure has been hammered into you already, but we will continue to hammer. You can't miss acute septic arthritis. Because that can often present in the same way as this mono um, arthritis, in a lot of pain. Mm.
1: And it's, it's also hot and red. Yeah. Often there's a bit of disability. It's hard to move it.
0: And so like often clinically you can tell the difference. Like acute septic arthritis is much, much worse. But if there's any shadow of a doubt, you should get an aspirate and double check.
1: Mm. And, and really, if there's any shadow of a doubt with any of these things, you should be getting the aspirate as yeah, that's well. that's a good point. Because that'll diagnose gout. But certainly, if you, you think that somebody might have septic arthritis, get that aspirate, send it for culture, and start antibiotics before you do anything else. Okay, then there's other crystalline-associated arthropathies. So not just gout, but there's gout as well.
0: So that's CPPD, or calcium pyrophosphate crystal disease. And uh, that's basically calcium which um, has shed and is sitting in your joints and you have some kind of trauma which uh, releases the crystals into your joint and, and causes inflammation and problems.
1: There's also this other thing called palindromic rheumatism. What is that? I have no idea.
0: So it's kind of like rheumatoid arthritis, but it comes in these like really discrete acute bursts and it has that... Interval similar to gout where you've got no symptoms at all. Quite a rare form, but definitely should be in your differential list. Psoriatic arthritis as well can be quite episodic, but that would be rare to have no symptoms in between and you'll get nail changes plus skin changes, obviously. And a silly one to miss would be trauma. If someone's hit their hit their pedagra or hit their big toe and they've got pain, there, you know that might be the cause. So just to go through those differentials quickly... The most important that you can't miss is septic arthritis. Always have that in your mind when you're, you're diagnosing someone with this, with gout. Am I sure this is an acute septic arthritis? More commonly, you could ask yourself, is this uh, gout, ca- calcium pyrophosphate crystal deposition disease and other ones to consider, palindromic rheumatism, psori- 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 psoriatic arthritis uh, or trauma?
1: Mm. And just a quick one, a differential for gouty tophi, rheumatoid nodules, they can look quite similar. Mm-hmm. All right, so so now we've done differentials. Let's move on to the investigations that can often help you sift out what the actual cause is. So we usually start with bloods. In the case of gout, bloods are not usually particularly helpful. So you might get a, a general picture of inflammation, elevated CRP, ESR, and the neutrophils can be elevated as well. Uric acid, helpful? Not helpful.
0: Contrary to popular belief and practice, not terribly helpful in an acute episode, unfortunately. Um, up to, I think it's like 49% of people will have a normal normal uric acid level during a gout episode.
1: Mm. So it can be normal, low or high. So it's pretty useless. But you should actually get a baseline uric acid level three weeks after an attack. What about imaging? So we start with an x-ray.
0: So hopefully if it's their first attack, they won't have any x-ray changes. Mm. Although maybe they'll have some osteoarthritis there that's underlying and attracting the gout crystals. But over time, you get these subcortical bone cysts, and you can see the tofi, you can see the inflammation. In particular, they get these punched out erosions with sclerotic margin, margins and overhanging edges of bone. So the, the, the key differential when you look at an x-ray like this is, is this rheumatoid arthritis. And the best way to differentiate the two is the absence of juxta-articular uh, osteoporosis in gout, but you've got that in rheumatoid arthritis.
1: Mm, and an MRI shows show similar things.
0: I don't know what crazy private hospital you're working in ordering MRIs for gout, but if you if you're doing it, you'll see some changes I guess.
1: And you can also do an ultrasound which I haven't really seen done except in the case of looking to see if there's a collection underlying some cellulitis, yeah. which is another differential. Yeah. Um, just a few buzzwords for um, people in the advanced team. So, ultrasounds can show hyperechoic cloudy areas, which is a sensitive and specific sign, or hyperechoic linear densities, also known as double contour signs, overlying the surface of joint cartilage, which is specific but not sensitive. So, these, these terms actually come up quite a lot, and we'll mention them again later on. Not important if you're a medical student, though.
0: Or even most doctors, but you know, it's good to hear about it.
1: <laughs> Another one that I hadn't heard of before, dual energy CT. It's a way of distinguishing urate from calcium and of estimating the TOFAS size. So I've seen this done in uh, looking at renal stones, which is actually another complication of of gout, but it's a good way to tell exactly what's causing the arthritis.
0: Mm. All right, so moving on to where the real money is here. So that's the arthrocentesis. So if they've got an effusion, and uh, this is the first episode of gout. It's a bit unclear. You're still want to rule out pseudo gout or uh, septic arthritis. You've got to have a pretty low threshold to do a joint aspirate.
1: Mm, okay. And when you do when you do the joint aspirate, it can be from bursal or synovial fluid, and often it looks pretty cloudy, and that's because there's elevated leukocytes, so two thousand to sixty thousand, something like that. But sometimes it's not just cloudy, it's thick and pasty. And that's because of the urate itself. Gross. Yeah, it's really gross.
0: Okay, buzzword time. Putting down the buzzword flag here. So you might get questions in real life at an exam. What do gout crystals look like under microscopy? So under negative birefringence, they the negatively birefringent... <laughs> under polarized microscopy it's still a buzzword for me i don't have a great understanding of what polarized microscopy is unfortunately and uh, they look like these yellow needles as i said like they look like these painful needles
1: Mm. and that's really specific for gout so um, negative birefringent um crystals 100 percent specific for gout
0: And just to contrast, that pseudo-gout, you'll have more rhomboid crystals and that'll be positively birefringent under polarized light.
1: Or not birefringent at all. Yeah, true, true. So, again, if you're taking a sample, you should culture it if you've got any suspicion whatsoever that there could be septic arthritis. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, if you've got a patient who comes in and they tell you that they had this episode that sounds a lot like gout a few weeks ago but it's better now, it's still worth doing an aspirate. So Mm, even in intercritical gout, um, a lot of patients have still have crystals in there, even if sense. they've been treated.
0: Mm, cool. Good to know. All right. So we won't go through this in detail, but there are some diagnostic criteria, which we don't tend to use clinically, but they're used for research and, and kind of give you a picture of what are the really important points. So uh, you need... Th- these are the EULAR, the as I like to call them, the European <laughs> League Against Rheumatism. They're very... They do good work. Good work. Real, real you heroes. You know they do
1: if they're in a league. They're real heroes. And the American College of Rheumatology. Eh, they're not so good. ACR.
0: Um, so tell me, back like, what are these criteria? We'll just go through it quickly. You don't need to memorize this. It's just to show what is the what are the most important parts of the diagnosis.
1: Yeah, so at least one episode of swelling, pain, or tenderness in a peripheral joint or bursa, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then with either MSU crystals that have been found. There we go. Diagnosis done. Or with a whole bunch of other things. So... Um, redness, exquisite tenderness. And this is, people jump off the bed. If you touch their gouty toe, they pretty much kick you in the face with their other foot. Mm. Um, Maximal pain reached within 24 hours, as we mentioned earlier. Resolution of symptoms within 14 days. So again, that sort of 12 days of Christmas thing. Mm -hmm. Being completely back to baseline in between attacks, presence of TOFI or imaging demonstrative of TOFI or gout-related damage. And there's a few other things as well in there.
0: But yeah, they're, they're the important ones.
1: Now, once you've made the diagnosis of gout, you might want to do a little bit more digging to see why this person has gout. So some other investigations might include an FBE, UEC, LFT, lipids. So you're not just looking at why they've got gout, but also uh, what kind of medications are going to be appropriate to give them. What is their renal function? All right, so that lends us leads us quite nicely into treatment now.
0: Mm. All right, so we talked about acute and chronic. So let's talk about acute first. What are you going to do? if Someone walks in with what you suspect is their first episode of podagra. What's your first line medication?
1: Well, firstly, I'd be concerned that they've walked in, so I don't, I don't think that we've no, got they've got the diagnosis, hopped, they've right? Hopped in. Okay. Hopped in. So, so someone that's hopped in with uh, an acute flare of gout, I'd start them off. or the guidelines suggest that we should start them off with an NSAID. So, naproxen, indomethacin tend to be the best ones there. First but A one. lot of people.
0: Very slight tangent there, sorry to interrupt. Naproxen is probably going to be a good choice in this population because naproxen is the only NSAID to show no increased cardiovascular effects. So elderly, obese patients with uh, renal failure, it's probably going to be a good choice.
1: Mm. So you start with that as long as there's no contraindications, if they're not on warfarin or anything like that, they don't have bleeding stomach ulcers. Second line, and and often used interchangeably, is colchicine. Third line is systemic or intraarticular corticosteroids and you have to be really sure that it's not an infection, an infected joint mm. to do that. And fourth line, which isn't really done at the moment, but interleukin one inhibitors like anakinra.
0: So as I mentioned before, that was kind of the end pathway of the innate system innate immune system activation leads to IL one. And we can spend thousands of dollars to inhibit that if we if we feel like it.
1: The principles of treatment for all of these things, though, are the same. You want to start as soon as possible. So patients waking up at 2 in the morning with the beginnings of gout should be taking their whatever NSAIDs they've got next to their bed as soon as possible. These should be continued for the whole duration of the attack and not stopped until 2 or 3 days after the symptoms have resolved. When would you start allopurinol at this stage?
0: No, it can actually make things worse. As we said before, your, your body gets into this fine homeostasis with uric acid, and if you play around that during an acute attack, um, you might make it worse, pre- precipitate more crystals.
1: Mm, so you don't muck around with it. If they're already on it, you don't change it, and if they're not on it, you don't start it.
0: Sounds good to me.
1: So, colchicine, what, what actually is it? How does it work?
0: Very cool drug. It inhibits microtubules, um, and is I guess, relatively specific for neutrophils there because it, it tends to affect and neutrophils more than other cells.
1: Mm. And it also, in doing this, disrupts the function of the gastrointestinal sy- system, so it can cause diarrhea.
0: So my, my JP, when I was a student, told me he only, he, the only person he'd give colchicine to would, is his mother-in-law because... He she she's the only person he'd want to see hopping around on one foot with diarrhoea. <laughs> but that's that's not not the case so much anymore. We used to th- we used to think that for colchicine to work you had to titrate to diarrhoea, mm. but now we know it works pretty well that uh, if we just use low doses.
1: I love that. They used to say just keep giving it until they get diarrhoea. Amazing.
0: Yeah, medieval medicine.
1: So so now now like Davil said, we we're into the low doses. Up-to-date suggests that you start on 500 micrograms TDS on the first day and then switch to a decreased dose of either once a day or, or twice a day thereafter. There are still some complications associated with even the low dose, so diarrhoea and vomiting is still an issue. Long term, you can get some neuromyopathy, especially in patients who've got renal impairment.
0: That's that's a big one that I've been told to watch out for.
1: Mm, and just keeping in mind as well that you need to be careful using colchicine cultured- in conjunction with cytochrome P three A four inhibitors, uh, particularly fucytic acid, is one to to keep in mind.
0: Mm.
1: Don't worry too much about that, though. What about intercritical management? So, in between these big attacks of gout.
0: So we always like to change people's lifestyle. It's a big big motivation for someone to lose weight. You know, maybe you won't have this horrible crippling pain if we if we help you lose weight and they can change their diet a little bit to avoid those high purine uh, polar bears.
1: Yeah, so so just to give a quick overview, first line, lifestyle and risk reduction. Second line, adding some medication, so either urate lowering measures or prophylactic NSAIDs or colchicine. And third line could even be surgery if there's really bad tophaceous disease. So mm-hmm. if we go through each of those in turn, the lifestyle risk reduction, we've talked a lot about diet and alcohol, um, avoiding diuretics where possible, managing comorbid conditions is also important. Let's talk a little bit more, though, about urate-lowering therapies.
0: So, the, the as we said before, um, purines are converted into uric acid by xanthine oxidase. So if we inhibit that xanthine oxidase enzyme, we'll produce less uric acid, and lo and behold, I just invented allopurinol.
1: You're amazing. Yeah, I am. Pretty cool. star. Yeah. So the indications for urate-lowering therapy in patients who've got gout are, are a little bit sort of nebulous. So frequent or disabling attacks of gouty arthritis. There's no exact definition for that, but usually more than two a year. Clinical or radiographic signs of chronic gout, TOFI, particularly in soft tissues or subchondral bone, renal insufficiency in association with gout, and recurrent uric acid, nephrolithiasis, or renal stones. So right. so in those patients, you'd be considering starting something like allopurinol. And the way you do that is you, you start it usually around two weeks after resolution of an acute flare. Mm-hmm. There are different schools of thought on this, though, and some people think that you can just start it during the acute attack. But generally, we say later.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you continue it indefinitely. So patients are on this for life. When allopurinol is started... As we've mentioned before, there is an increased risk of another flare. So do you know, Darwa, how we usually avoid that?
0: So this is not always done from what I've seen, but technically you should at least consider starting them on some colchicine and and preventing those microtubules from assembling properly.
1: Yeah, so give the allopuminole with colchicine for the first, well, quite a while. So continue it for six months after you get to... Low enough levels of uric acid to have reached your goal uric acid.
0: So a bit of a change in practice has just come around with um, studying allopurinol recently as well. If someone's Asian, you should uh, test them for a particular HLA type, uh, which I've forgotten which one it is exactly. Um, And because if they're that HLA type...
1: 5801, I've just remembered.
0: Oh, you're Great. Five
1: eight zero one oh, HLAB star H-
0: five eight zero. What's That's the star? That's the one. Anyway, so there's a HLA type you test if if they're Asian, um, not because you're racist, but because you want to stop them from having a a terrible skin reaction. It can actually lead to Steven Johnson syndrome. So it's very similar to what we do with carbamazepine pretty routinely. There's certain groups of patients that are high risk of very severe reactions that we can't give them allopurinol.
1: So let's say you, you've got gone through all of those obstacles. you have
0: done your racial profiling.
1: You've done your racial profiling. The patient is on allopurinol. How are you going to monitor them? So what you're doing is you're not titrating to symptoms or anything like that. You're titrating to a serum uric acid level, and the goal is less than 6. So you want to keep an eye on a few things, monitoring their FBE, UEC, LFT, and uric acid in order to achieve this. Generally, you start at 100 milligrams daily, and then you titrate and, and dose adjustment needs to be done in patients who have chronic kidney disease. And then do you stop once you get to that target serum uric acid? No. No. So keep going for life. It's one of those. There's also another medication called Febboxostat, which I've never seen in the hospital, but it's an alternative to allopurinol. It's actually a another xanthine oxidase inhibitor, but it's got a completely different chemical makeup so patients who are allergic to allopurinol can have this.
0: Mm-hmm. So another drug to quickly mention is probenicid so this is a drug that helps you pee out your uric acid. Uh, can It can be used in people that are less than 60 and not excreting too much so less than 800 milligrams and their renal function is okay. I don't see it used too much um, so maybe not that important actual clinical practice but worth kind of knowing the name.
1: And then lastly patients who's who have advanced tophaceous gout, lots of symptoms and have tried lots of other urate-lowering therapies, could try pagloticase monotherapy, which is an IV medication, and I've also never seen that used. Mm-hmm. So treatment. Acute flare, we want to start early. You start with an NSAID or colchicine, consider steroids. Into critical management, you need to look at lifestyle risk reduction, consider allopurinol, um, consider also prophylactic NSAIDs or colchicine remembering not to change allopurinol at the time of an acute attack. Mm -hmm. So that's actually pretty much it. I'll just briefly give a bit of a shout-out to the complications of gout. So the most important one is renal stones. So
0: It's my favourite.
1: Nephrolithiasis made up of those uric acid crystals. Mm -hmm. And the other one is chronic renal impairment, and this is an interesting one because most patients who have gout have other reasons to have problems with their kidneys, so it's hard to tease out. The truth but it is listed in a lot of articles and things as Books. being a complication, a, a clinical manifestation, in fact, of gout. So that's it.
0: So that's that's pretty much all you need to know about gout as a medical student. If you are sick of listening to us, you can stop now. But if you want to learn to apply that in some cases, read on. We've got a few more mem- few more minutes.
1: And our take-home points are still yet to come, Mm. if you can hold on for that. All right, so let's be quick. Henry is a 74-year-old man who's got a recurrent acute gout. He comes to you and he's got pain, redness, warmth, swelling, and disability of lots of joints. His first left metatarsal phalangeal joint, the left ankle, and the left toe. The toe started 3 a.m. yesterday. And then the ankle, and then the knee have come up since yeah, then. He's
0: walked straight out of textbook land. I love those patients.
1: He has. So he tells you that he's first been diagnosed with gout a few years previous it comes to this with the diagnosis. presentation. It, it does, yeah. And this is his third flare for the year. Culture scene started at at the first signs of an attack. Usually does the trick. And these episodes usually last about a week, but then they get better, and there's no symptoms in between. But over time, these flares have been getting more frequent and worse. So this often happens when patients get these these episodes that start to be associated with fever or they stop being just one joint and they start being multiple joints. Mm-hmm. So this Henry has an otherwise clean bill of health and in between his episodes of gout, he doesn't take any medications at all and you get, after, after a long struggle, you get a health summary sent from his GP. I went through and, a lot of
0: fax machines, at least uh, seven...
1: And uh, it's completely blank, except to mention a a penchant for sherry and a penicillin allergy.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: On examination, you can see that it really does look like gout. And he's also got tophi on his ears and his Achilles tendon.
0: Yeah. Sounds like this man needs some lifestyle changes to begin with.
1: Yeah, so you start with that. But that's going to take a while to take effect. So what do you do right now?
0: So I'd like to treat his cute gout as well.
1: Yeah. So, start off with naproxen or something like that. It doesn't sound like he's got any contraindications. hmm And you want to keep that up until... Do you remember? People playing at home. Two weeks. Two two to three days post-resolution. Not two weeks. Just kidding. Chicken. And, and like Davos said, this is a good time to educate him as well on those lifestyle measures. So, changing his diet. Then... He comes back a couple of weeks later, as you asked him to, because he planned to start allopurinol.
0: hmm
1: You start allopurinol, and he gets a rash.
0: Damn.
1: So we mentioned a little bit earlier about the toxicity of allopurinol in patients who are expressing HLA-B5801.
0: Did we not do our racial profiling?
1: Well, actually, in this case, we did do our racial profiling, and he got through. But... Toxicity of allopurinol is actually really common in patients who are allergic to penicillin. And remember, this guy is allergic to penicillin. Uh, Another thing uh, is patients who use thiazide diuretics are also more likely to experience a toxicity reaction to allopurinol. Right.
0: right.
1: So so things can be pretty nasty. Toxic epidermal... Toxic epid... Yeah, one more time. Toxic epidermal necrolysis, systemic vasculitis, bone marrow suppression granulomatous hepatitis, renal failure. It can all be pretty bad. Sometimes it can just be a little
0: rash. It can just be straight up Stephen Johnson's.
1: Yeah, I actually didn't read that, but right, if okay. you say so. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's go off. My name's up to date.
1: But look, there there are alternatives to allopurinol, and we mentioned them earlier, so you might try that febuxostat that we mentioned before. And or just reconsider, reconsider the use of a... Um, a uricosuric agent, so that's something like probenicid. Mm. Otherwise, desensitization is always an option. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's
1: that case. Can I tell you about Jose?
0: Jose, yes.
1: So he's an 85-year-old man who's got a sore knee. He fell over three days ago.
0: Is he from Mexico?
1: Uh, Yeah, let's say he's from Mexico. Good. He fell over three days ago. His knee is red, hot, and swollen. He doesn't have a fever. He's never had this before. You do an X-ray and there's no fractures, but there's significant chondrocalcinosis, which Ooh, is calcification a of the cartilage. Uh,
0: buzzword senses a tingling.
1: And his FBA is normal.
0: Right. Cool.
1: So what's the buzzword?
0: The uh, chondrocalcinosis. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but that's something you see in pseudo gout. So as we said, that's uh, calcium depositing in a joint, and it, it creates this like linear. Line. It's a linear line. It's a linear of line. Not these circular lines. <laughs> linear line within the cartilage. And you can see it's chondrocalcinosis. And that's a, that's a giveaway that this is actually pseudogout and not proper gout. But is it? Yes.
1: No. So it never is. Pseudogout and gout are too clinically similar to be able to distinguish in real life. In a model choice question, then you just go for it and you call this pseudogout. But in real life, you should always do an aspirate if you're not sure, but although man. the treatment is pretty similar. Another thing to think about in this guy is whether he's actually got septic arthritis. But you do an aspirate, and the culture is negative. You find out three days later. But on the day, you see tiny polymorphic non-birefringent crystals. So this is probably calcium pyrophosphate. I should have and you gone with your my
0: di- original diagnosis. <laughs> you so much it's time Hospital and money. Route. Yeah, exactly.
1: So he gets some intra-articular glucocorticoids. If more than one joint were affected, they might have tried NSAIDs or even colchicine, what? but it probably wouldn't have worked because it never does.
0: Do, can you use pseudo-allopurinol for pseudo-gout?
1: Yes. Yes, you can. No,
0: there's no... That was a serious question. <laughs> there's no, like, between-attack-lowering therapy you can you can use for these poor guys. you just got to manage each uh, episode symptomatically.
1: Mm. Okay, one last case... There's a seven-year-old girl, not 70, seven. Mm. Her name's Margot, and she comes in with what looks like...
0: She named after Margot Robbie, probably.
1: Uh, yeah, well, my my baby cousin. I like the name.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She's a seven-year-old girl, and she's got pedagra.
0: Mm. Same as part of the course for seven-year-olds. Wrong.
1: No. So, in, in childhood, urate levels are actually very low, so gout is extremely rare, and... I should point out here that this is not actually my cousin, because now I feel bad that I've associated him (laughs) with this horrible condition. Uh, But if you do have a child who is presenting with gout...
0: Firstly, ask why they're coming to see a general physician with their seven-year-old, but next question.
1: yep, next question. It's your friend's kid or something. Next question is, what's their FBE? So... The big thing that you want to rule out here in a kid presenting with gout is some kind of a myeloproliferative disease. So do they have AML?
0: Take-home point, send them to a pediatrician.
1: The other things are all of those genetic diseases we mentioned earlier. So there could be some kind of a metabolic disorder that hasn't previously been diagnosed. Some
0: might have Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. What's that? So I think you'd know if you had Lesch-Nyhan syndrome, unfortunately. So this terrible disease where they've got really high uric acid levels, intellectual disability, and this overwhelming desire to self-harm. They Mm. spend a lot of time biting themselves. That's awful. It's really awful. Anyway, on on that note, note, (laughs) we'll talk about take-home points because we don't want to leave you with Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. What's the pathophysiology?
1: Hyperuricemia, usually because of renal underexcretion. MSU, monosodium urate crystals, and that leads to inflammation. Risk factors, Santa, eating steak and seafood with CKD and hypertension.
0: On a plate of fructose.
1: Well, he's got the cookies. He's got
0: the cookies. It's already built into the
1: Santa bit. Clinical presentation is usually acute or chronic arthritis. They can have TOFI.
0: Which are just solid uric acid crystals that can actually melt away if you treat it.
1: A bit late in the game to mention this, but uric acid and urate are synonymous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you picked that up. Uh, investigations, but the most important one is the aspirate. So you get negatively birefringent MSU crystals.
0: They look yellow on polarized light. Mm. Lots of elves.
1: Treatment, acute flare. NSAIDs. Yep, start early. NSAIDs are culture seen Consider steroids. Intercritical. Lifestyle and risk reduction, so diet, alcohol, obesity, comorbidities, medications. And consider starting some anti-gout medicines, so allopurinol, prophylactic NSAIDs or colchicine or something like probenicid. And that, my friends, is the end of a very long episode on a very painful condition called gout.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thanks. Thanks for listening.